talking about pelvic organ prolapse today. This is Practice Bulletin 214, which was originally published back in November 2017, reaffirmed this very year, 2024, and it pairs great with the Malbec from Cruz Alta 2020. Delicious. The label itself says deep red color with hints of purple. Rich black fruit and red plum aromas. Smooth and concentrated concentrated tannins. Long and firm finish. Yummy. Yummy. Every single episode we pair a practice bulletin or committee opinion with a bottle of wine. I'm going to be reading from my notes. If you want access to my notes with a bunch of other uh, related topics linked you know, resources linked. You can go to Patreon. Put the I'll put the link in the podcast description. You can go and check that out. You can have access to everything that I have access to. I spend a lot of time on these notes and recording and publishing this podcast. So when you subscribe to Patreon, it makes me hear that you're listening. It makes me know that you're listening, and it uh, feels like a little a little couple dollars worth of love every month helps me keep the lights on here. So, thank you. There are four pearls. This is a long one. This is a long one. Uh, four pearls instead of five just because I'm feeling wacky today. The first is if a patient isn't bothered by prolapse or other symptoms, they don't necessarily need therapy. Two, try conservative measures first before recommending surgery. Duh. Three, study pelvic anatomy early and often. And four, prophylactic apical support should always be considered in pelvic organ prolapse surgery. By the way, pelvic organ prolapse is a tongue twister, so I'm going to say pop from now on. It's also important to note that there was an interim update when this practice bulletin was reaffirmed. It was updated as highlighted in the uh, original document itself to reflect the US FDA's order to stop the sale of transvaginal synthetic mesh products for the repair of POP. So just bear that in mind. And by the way, there are gonna be a uh, series of at least two interviews on my other podcast, the Holistic OBGYN podcast, one with a urogynecologist named Ryan Stewart, a buddy of mine, used to live down the street from me in Louisville, moved to Indianapolis. He's probably living a great life there too. He's going to come on and talk about his approach to this, especially considering some of the new rulings from the FDA. And you're going to hear from Adam Slater, who's an attorney who has litigated in a number of these transvaginal mesh cases on behalf of the consumer. So he was uh, really insightful you know, for a variety of reasons, but but you know, what I was really surprised by was his in-depth knowledge of how products get through the FDA and then the FDA's, uh, I don't know, the good, the bad, the ugly of the FDA. I suppose we've all had some experience with the FDA, especially during COVID. But anywho, let's get into the practice bulletin. Let's get over go over some background first. When we're talking about pelvic organ prolapse, what we're referring to is the descent of one or more of the anterior vagina, posterior vagina, the cervix and uterus. If there's no cervix and uterus, then the vaginal vault. If it starts to fall into this potential space that is the vagina and perhaps even extrude beyond the vaginal introits, that's the opening of the vagina. For the dudes out there, that's where you put your penis. This is how we we classify POP. When you you develop any weakness in these components, these uh, organs can, can fall into the vagina they can even come all the way out of the introitus, and they can lead to all sorts of symptoms. Um, if it's really mild, it doesn't generally need repair. We'll talk about all the management options here. But if it's significant enough that it's causing you urinary or bowel dysfunction, then repair may be appropriate. About 3% of women report a bulge in the vagina. But honestly, I think this is very underreported. 
And so it's probably far higher than that. Um, you know, risk factors include how many babies you've had. If you have more babies, if you have a history of vaginal birth, if you're older, if you're overweight, if you have a connective tissue disorder, if you're menopausal, or if you have chronic constipation, all risk factors for developing any of these types of POP. It is uh, unclear if hysterectomy for non-POP indications is an independent risk factor, meaning if you had a hysterectomy and it was just because you had, like, let's say, abnormal bleeding or some early endometrial disease or something, we don't know for sure if taking the uterus and cervix out is necessarily a risk factor for future pelvic organ prolapse. But I suspect because all this connective tissue is uh, it kind of harmonizes with one another. Um, I mean, like, very literally, all these anatomic structures are supporting one another. But if you take one of those big ones out, especially considering how many attachment points the uterus has in the pelvis, does this potentially predispose a person? We don't know that yet, but I think it kind of makes sense that it would. For those who undergo POP surgery, um, up to 30% will require a second operation. But as time has continued, that number has fallen lower and lower, and now it's anywhere from 5 to 30%. But it's important to know that, that so many women go through a second operation. So let's say a person walks into your clinic. What are you going to do? What are you going to talk to them about? Let's say, oh, I'm just here for a well-woman visit, or I feel like a bulge, right? Well, you're going to ask them about urinary incontinence, urgency. Um, does their bladder still feel like it's full after they've, they've micturated, they've urinated? Um, same goes for fecal or gas uh, uh, for the rectum. Um, are you losing uh, feces or gas when you, when you toot? Are you constipated? <clears throat> Do you have to put your finger in the vagina to help you know, fully void the, the bladder or the rectum? That's called splinting. Uh, Do you have any kind of leakage with any daily activities, especially intercourse, valsalva, coughing, sneezing, those types of things. There is a pelvic floor dysfunction questionnaire. I've linked it in the show notes. Again, if you want access to all of the detailed notes, you can go to the Patreon link in the podcast description. But that questionnaire is called the PDFI 20. It's the most up-to-date as far as I'm aware. So you've gotten your very, very detailed history. Then you're going to do an, a, a physical exam. The external exam would just be to look for things like vulvar atrophy. Are there any bleeding lesions? Does the skin look like thin and friable? And is there obviously something hanging out of the vagina, right? Is there a cervix looking at you whenever you um, start your exam without even putting a speculum or anything in? Are you seeing something there that doesn't belong? Then, of course, you want to do a post-void post residual cough test. So... Um, you know, and cough test, I should say. So that would mean like, hey, go to the bathroom, empty your bladder, and then we're going to put a little sterile um, straight cath into your bladder to see how much more comes out, right? Um, you can also just directly watch them. Like you're looking at the vulva and have them cough. If a little bit of urine comes out, you just diagnosed urinary incontinence or stress urinary incontinence, which will be another topic for another time in, uh, on, the, on the podcast here. Doing a gentle rectal exam to evaluate sphincter tome, see if they can clench around your finger. That's always helpful. And then, of course, you want to place a speculum in the vagina, but just take one half and press up on the, on the anterior compartment and then have them push down. It could be coughing, sneezing. It could be just grunting, like as if they're pushing out a baby or, or pooping. And see what happens. See what happens to the posterior compartment. See what happens to the apex. Then flip it around, do the same thing, compressing the posterior compartment, looking at what happens to the anterior vagina, uh, which is, you know, right above which is the, is the bladder. Um, again, with Valsalva, just see what happens when they're pushing down. If you're not seeing anything, but she's saying, I definitely feel a bulge, and you're like, I don't see a bulge. Have, do, do all of this, but have, um, have her stand up and then do 
then do the exam. If there's any urinary symptoms at all, get a urinalysis and culture in the very least. You may also recommend urodynamics, which is when we basically put a little pressure sensor in the urethra and bladder, and we just see what is happening between your, your detrusor muscle and the internal, um, uh, internal urethral sphincter and, and all these things. This is especially helpful if there's any degree of voiding dysfunction, like they weren't able to empty their bladder, or if they have at least stage two prolapse. It may be helpful, of course, before you go into the operating room. The classification systems for pelvic organ prolapse have changed quite a bit over the years. There's the Baden scale. That's probably the most, uh, that was probably the, the favorite until we had our quantitative pop um, staging that came later. But the Baden scale was looking at grade one, two, three, and four. Grade two was that any bulge, so to speak, any tissue up inside there is coming down to the level of the vaginal introitus. Beyond that would be grade three if it was completely averted, grade four. It's similar with the quanti excuse me, with the quantitative pop, but it's a little bit more specific from a plus or minus standpoint relative to the, the hiatus. I put a diagram for this. I'm not gonna try to explain it because it's actually really, really hard to put language to this. Uh, but when you see the diagrams in the show notes, you'll, you'll get it. There's also a three by three grid, it looks like a tic-tac-toe board where we, we assign, um, they're not arbitrary, but they are subjective um, points along the anterior and posterior compartments. And then when a person is valsalvaing, you, you want to see where do those points move. Does the midway points in the anterior vagina move towards the introitus and by how much? Once you assign scores there, you can actually start to use that in order to determine where you think the structural support is needed. I, again, put the um, POP quantitative quantification system diagram from the practice bulletin right in the show notes. Um, I also want to comment that you might hear terms like cystocele and rectocele still. That, those have fallen out of favor, in favor of anterior and posterior prolapse um, or anterior compartment prolapse as opposed to cystocele. Cystocele really just means the bladder is starting to bulge into the vagina. Rectocele is the rectum starting to bulge into the vagina. Um, you can also see the terms like apical prolapse or vaginal prolapse. These terms are all interchangeable, but generally speaking, the older literature will use cystocele and rectocele, and the, mod the more contemporary literature will, will use anterior and posterior, just as an FYI. And I may even slip up because I learned, you know, sort of in the middle there. So of course, Everybody always thinks about surgery, right? But what about some conservative approaches? This is, I, I love this. This is like where the, the, the like a real, a real practitioner shines. So if a person's constipated and they're getting these prolapse symptoms as a result of having to push really hard when they have to take a dump, let's get them pooping. And colase doesn't count. Colase is all mush, no push. Trust me on this. I'm a palliative care physician. I've managed far more complicated constipation than the vast majority of OBGYNs. Instead, you want something that has a little bit of a stimulant effect like Miralax or Dolcolax. If the stools are loose, fiber is really, really helpful. Um, if they only feel the bulge when they're sitting at rest, then try elevating the feet. That might take some of the, the, the sort of uh, force of gravity off of the prolapse. Um, pelvic floor uh, physical therapy can be very helpful. We're going to talk about pessaries as well. Local estrogen um, can also be helpful if there's irritation related, like if that bulge is irritated and rubbing on, on underwear or something, you can use some local estrogen to make the tissue more robust, but it's not alone going to reduce the prolapse. Um, I then, in the show notes, you'll see some pictures of the different pessaries. These are basically hard silicone devices that go into the vagina and just 
occupy space there in order to prevent the anterior or posterior or apical prolapse from, um, from just sliding down to the introitus. Um, a couple notes on these pessaries. These are awesome if your patient has any preclusions to surgery, like maybe they have a history of heart disease and kidney disease and whatnot, and putting them under general anesthesia for seven hours is not in their best interest. Um, it could also be useful for women who have prolapse but want to maintain their fertility or they just really don't want you to remove their uterus. Let's try a pessary. It's effective in up to 90% of women with POP, um, and it's probably sufficient for uh, the lower stages of POP, even stage three. There is a type of pessary called gel, a gel horn, which looks like a disc with like a nipple attached. Um, this is great for third and fourth degree POP. It's effective in up to 65% of cases. So the one limitation is you have to be able to maintain this at home. So if you can't, if you can't do this, you have to come in every three to four months to have it checked up on. Um, if you can maintain it, you still have to go in annually. So there is some degree of, of user, a potential user error here. Uh, erosions, if it's not maintained well, are seen in up to 10% of patients. Um, and of course, that number can get higher if you ha don't have a caretaker that can reliably do this on a regular basis. Uh, one thing that I learned in residency was coating the pessary with a topical estrogen cream can decrease the likelihood of erosion. So you take it out, you clean it off once in a while, maybe like every two, three months, and then you coat it with topical estrogen and you push it back in into place. And that seems to work really, really well. If, it, if an erosion, which is really just like an ulceration, a breakdown of the skin, if that's diagnosed when they come back in for follow-up, take the pessary out for two to four weeks and, and treat with adequate amounts of topical estrogen. And that'll help make that tissue more robust. It'll help heal the ulceration. And then maybe you just have to start doing a regular application of topical estrogen after that erosion is healed and you want to keep using the pessary. All right, now what everybody's been waiting for is the surgical techniques. There are a variety of surgical techniques that have been uh, utilized over time for pelvic organ prolapse. So let's start by covering the variety of techniques that urogynes use for POP surgery. So the abdominal sacral copopexy, this is in order to correct an apical prolapse for the most part. It's usually indicated in women with recurrent cystocele, um, recurrent vault prolapse, or an enterocele. Um, cystocele, of course, is the, is the anterior vaginal prolapse. Enterocele is a fancy word for rectocele, fancy word for uh, posterior uh, vaginal prolapse. And this could be a primary therapy. I think it's probably using, being used more and more for that. We'll talk about this sacral copopexy procedure in a minute. There's also something called a uterosacral ligament suspension, which is generally done at the time of hysterectomy or if a person has already had their uterus removed with or without the cervix, a, a removal of a cervix in, in addition to the uterus is called a total hysterectomy, or you can have a supracervical hysterectomy where the cervix is kept in place, which is, I think, something we should be talking about because this, the cervix has so many nerve endings and contributes to orgasm. But anyways, the, the uterosacral ligament suspension is meant to prevent a, an apical or vaginal prolapse after a hysterectomy is done. We'll talk about more, more about that in a little bit. Sacrospinous fixation, same purpose, just using utilizing different ligaments. You can do a uterosacral and sacrospinous fixation. Um, I believe you, you can do those together, but usually one or the other is picked. And um, then we move on to just the specific anterior or posterior prolapse repairs. The first is the anterior um, colporophy. Um, 
basically what we do is we denude the anterior part of the vagina and then we bring the supportive tissues on either side the connective tissue together in order to provide a a, a stronger uh, foundation there to prevent the recurrence or to correct but also prevent recurrence of an interior wall prolapse the same can be said for a posterior coporophy and then of course there are vaginal techniques whereby we place synthetic mesh or biological graft um, through the vagina in order to um, correct a, a specific defect um, or, or to repair anterior apical or both and um, this is not a routine recommendation um, partly in, in part due to con concerns around mesh which we're going to get into next um, but first let, let me just give you a couple little pearls about surgical techniques the vaginal approach is relatively safe and very effective for most women with pop um, that is barring the sort of controversy around vaginally placed mesh but the point here is that if you can do something vaginally, it's generally going to be less of a uh, problematic surgery for people. You know, you, you, you don't have to go into the abdomen. You don't have to use robots or, or laparoscopic surgery to do this. Um, you can do it all directly with your hands using sutures and needle drivers and everything. And um, it oftentimes is actually faster to do it this way, even though these procedures are long regardless of how they're done. There are techniques that are called native tissue repairs where you don't use mesh, you actually just use the native tissues. And um, when we get into mesh, I'll, I'll tell you why that might be important. Um, if a person has pelvic organ prolapse, hysterectomy alone isn't sufficient. In the very, very least, one of those sacral suspension procedures should be added to it, um, especially if there's already a known apical or anterior or posterior prolapse. Um, when we compare uterosacral versus sacrospinous fixation, we have found that at, at the two-year mark, which is how long studies usually follow women for, longer than that is, is oftentimes very expensive and, and cumbersome for the researchers. They tend to be equally effective around 64% of the time. Um, there's a low adverse event rate at the two-year mark, which is around 15%. So um, these fixations are highly effective, and they carry some very, very low adverse event rates. Um, and then finally, anterior compartment prolapse is often accompanied by concurrent apical prolapse. So if you fix them both at the same time, you'll reduce the risk of recurrence. If you only do one, you're likely setting them up for the need for a repeat surgery. So let's talk a little bit about mesh. So the manufacturers of these products, companies like Johnson & Johnson, they have failed to demonstrate an acceptable long-term benefit risk profile for surgery with these devices compared with transvaginal native tissue prolapse repair. And so it's important to note that the FDA um, announced that uh, mesh um, placed vaginally, uh, should, we should not be placing mesh vaginally, although some surgeons are still doing that. There was a, a pretty critical uh, letter written by Ann Weber, who's actually a very, very well-known urogynecologist. She's not practicing any longer, but she um, started the fellowship program at UPMC McGee, which is one of the top fellowship programs in the, in the country for urogynecology. And she, she wrote a, um, a letter called Informed Consent Cannot Be Obtained for Use of Vaginal Mesh because sufficient data do not yet exist regarding the use of vaginal mesh in procedures for POP. In the absence of these data, obtaining truly informed consent itself is impossible, which gets into the variety of litigation trials that uh, Adam Slater, who I mentioned before, has, has overseen as an attorney. Um, there just simply hasn't been great data 
And so you can't provide your client who's there with, with a vaginal bulge with informed consent if you don't have the data. Most of the data is, is kind of bought out for by the companies that stand to gain from this. And we get into that in that interview. So, so check that interview out on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. But as a quick little overview of the timeline, you know, this, these mesh products in general, you know, sort of like, hey, there's, there's this mesh we use for hernia. Why don't we start using this mesh for GYN procedures? And so these companies like Johnson & Johnson started reformulating their product catalog and said, hey, that same mesh that was used for hernia repair, we can use that in the vagina. Unfortunately, by 2011, the FDA had, had, had sort of wisened up to this, and they started removing many transvaginal mesh products from the market. By 2016, uh, the FDA had labeled these mesh devices as high risk. Now, this only applies to mesh placed transvaginally. We still have good use for mesh in certain procedures, like that abdominal sacral copalpexy that we'll talk about in a minute. But this is when they're placed transvaginally. It was found that perhaps it's it's leading to too many adverse events and leading to chronic pain and mesh erosion and all these other things. 2019, the FDA ordered the manufacturers uh, of all remaining surgical mesh products indicated for transvaginal repair of POP to stop selling and distributing their products in the United States. This does not apply to transvaginal mesh for stress urinary incontinence, like those mesh slings that we use to, to, to kink the urethra in order to, to uh, prevent you from leaking urine whenever you're coughing. Um, it also does not apply to the transabdominal mesh procedures for POP repair. So if you're a person or if one of your clients has had mesh placed transvaginally for POP, there's no intervention needed unless you're experiencing any symptoms or complications. There was a committee opinion 694, management of mesh and graft complications in gynecologic surgery. I linked those in the show notes that you can find if you subscribe to our Patreon. Um, and despite all these changes by the FDA, there are some surgeons still using mesh in select patients with anterior or apical um, pop transvaginally in which they deem risks to be outweighed by the benefits. And that's going to be a clinician by clinician dis- determination. There, um, of note, was a systematic review by the Cochrane uh, collaborators that looked at the use of synthetic mesh or biologic grafts in pop surgery and found it was associated with unique complications not seen in pop repair with native tissue. That's when you're using the, the tissues that are there and making those, those native tissues, your own tissues, more robust as opposed to in, in, implanting this foreign device, this synthetic mesh product in there. So this systematic review looked at seven RCTs that compared native tissue repair with synthetic mesh vaginal prolapse repair and found that more women in the mesh group required repeat surgery for the combined outcome of prolapse, stress incontinence, or mesh exposure with a relative risk of 2.4. So the jury is not yet out on this, um, or is still out on this. How, How does that phrase go? I don't know. But anyways, this is pretty controversial right now, and I do recommend you read Ann Weber's critiques in some of the urology and urogyne journals. I actually really, really appreciate her integrity here. She actually helped Adam Slater in his litigation process uh, across the Northeast um, because a lot of women were coming to him with these complications. And uh, Adam's not the type that has like billboards, uh, you know, injured in an accident or whatever. Like he's a pretty outstanding guy, I have to say. So look forward to that interview. Uh, we talk a little bit about Ann's letters as well. And I'm going to try to get Ann Weber on the podcast as well to talk about this. So let's talk about this abdominal sacral copalpexy. It's a really, really complicated term. Who's a what's a? Abdominal sacral copalpexy. Well, this is where uh, we place synthetic mesh or a biological graph um, in the abdomen. We attach it to the apex. So if you still have a uterus with a cervix, we'll place a, a, a piece of this mesh on the top of the uterus, a piece on the bottom, and then we pull it back and attach it to the sacrum. 
um, specifically to the anterior longitudinal ligament of the sacrum. And this can be a better option for patients with intra-abdominal pathology, a shortened vaginal length, or risk factors for recurrence, like they're young, meaning there's gonna be more years that pass, um, and just sort of statistically speaking, more likely to experience a recurrence. Um, if a person has a stage three or four prolapse, this may be a better option, and if their BMI is greater than 26, and we're not looking to remove their uterus. Um, if a, if a person has a history, um, or if a person is at risk for mesh complications, like they're a chronic steroid user, they're diabetic, they're an active smoker, then a biological graft may be a better option. Now looking at native tissue, um, they have less complications than mesh, things like post-op ileus, small bowel obstruction, uh, VTE, um, vombo, that's a venous thromboembolic event, um, or a mesh or suture complication. So. When native tissue is used, there's less likely to be a recurrence, meaning less likely that you'll need a repeat surgery in the future. There was a, a trial called the CARE trial, which found that the risk of mesh erosion into the vagina or um, the development of something like sacral osteitis was about 10%. It really varied on the pore size. Large pore size mesh has lower risk of complications, and this is the type that's predominantly used in the United States. This abdominal sacral colpopexy process, uh, uh, procedure can be done through a minimally invasive approach, um, which, uh, frankly, you really can't do this vaginally. Um, but if you were to do it as an open procedure, this operating uh, time is going to be longer. You're going to have more blood loss. Um, you're going to have a longer hospitalization. So we can either do this laparoscopically or with a robotic-assisted laparoscopic approach. Um, when we do it robotically, it sounds fancy and sexy, but it's way more expensive. The operating time is way longer, and then you have far greater post-op pain because these big arms that the robot is controlling, they require more incisions and bigger incisions, and it just overall, I think, is more traumatic to the abdominal wall, um, which was found in a few studies. So we've talked about a lot of things here. We haven't talked about obliterative procedures, which is... Uh, an option for women who have significant comorbidities that's really, frankly, like they would not be able to withstand a second surgery. So we're going to do one surgery. We're going to close off the, the vagina, basically. Um, of course, this uh, requires that a person is no longer desiring any sexual intercourse because they're not going to have an opening there to put a, a penis. You can have intimacy in other ways, but uh, your vagina will be closed off. So when we do these obliterative procedures, sometimes it is a good idea because there's an extremely low risk of recurrence of POP, and they're highly effective um, at subjective improvement of POP. About 90% of women are totally satisfied. There's also a very low risk of complications. It's less than about 5% and low risk of regret. You know, it's around 10% of women may find like, oh, it turns out I want to have sex, penetrative intercourse after. It's not possible anymore. So just something to bear in mind, 90% of women don't have that regret. When an obliterative procedure is done, a sling, a, a uh, transurethral sling or transvaginal sling can be placed. Again, we'll get into that in our urinary incontinence um, discussion in a future episode. Uh, placing that at the time of an obliterative procedure has been found to reduce the risk of post-op urinary incontinence. And there are two different types of, uh, of, this, of these obliterations. One is the Lefort style. This is a partial copo Cliesis, the uterus is kept in place, and the anterior and posterior segments of the vagina are denuded and sutured together like a sandwich. And then we keep, we maintain these little drainage canals on the left and right side to allow for the cervical fluids to continue to drain throughout your lifetime. 
The alternative to that would be for patients who have have already had a hysterectomy. The entire vagina is denuded and sutures are placed to evert the vagina. So you're completely closing off this potential space. That's called a total colpectomy. Of note, because the Lafort, uh, with the Lafort style partial colpocleusis, the endometrial cavity and cervix are still there, but you can't evaluate them any longer. So it's best to screen for endometrial hyperplasia, um, endometrial atypia, cervical dysplasia, all of those things before the procedure. And of course, you'd have to consider if there was a recent leap or whatever, you may not want to, to completely lose access to the cervix because there's a potential for the, the development of cervical cancer many, many years later. But all of this is a part of the complex clinical decision-making and counseling that the provider is offering to their clients. So some of these procedures uh, will carry a risk of injury to the bladder or obstructing the ureters. And if there is significant risk of that, then it's important to do cystoscopy while the patient is still under anesthesia. The types of procedures that are most concerning for these, these types of adverse events are the transurethral and transvaginal slings for urinary incontinence, um, either prophylactic or otherwise. The uterosacral suspensions, because the, uter the ureters pass really, really close to those uterosacral ligaments, and anterior colporophy, where we're operating very, very close to the bladder, and those entry points of the ureters into the bladder. So if a person comes to you and they've got you know, signs of POP, there are a couple options. options. You could do the Lafort procedure, which we just described, or um, hysteropexy, which is... Um, generally done with, after a, uh, a subtotal hysterectomy or what's called a supracervical hysterectomy. You can attach the cervix to the longitudinal, longitudinal ligament of the sacrum using mesh or biological graft. Um, this can be a vaginal approach, but remember what we said about vaginally placed mesh, abdominal or laparoscopic with or without the robot. There's an advantage here over hysterectomy in that there's a shorter operating time and a lower chance of mesh erosion if mesh was used. And no difference in sexual experience, most likely because the cervix, which is a sexual organ, is still in place. Should a mid-urethral sling always be offered with pop surgery? Most of the time, yes. Um, you have to imagine, you've removed a whole bunch of tissue and now the pelvis and all this connective tissue is going to re-situate itself. And sometimes you maybe didn't have stress urinary incontinence, and now as a result of changing the connective tissue and the dynamics of how all of these, these fascial planes are working together, you may develop de novo stress urinary incontinence. So placing a sling after pop surgery oftentimes um, is a good idea, especially if um, a person when you reduce the prolapse, if they cough and urine comes out, then that's kind of mimicking what, will, what they'll experience after you've done their anterior prolapse repair or their apical prolapse repair. Um, here's a direct quote. All women with significant apical prolapse, anterior prolapse, or both should have a preoperative evaluation for occult stress urinary incontinence with cough stress testing or urodynamic testing with the prolapse reduced. That's basically what I just said. Prophylactic concurrent sling at the time of pop repair reduces risk of post-op urinary incontinence in half from about 50% down to 25%. That means we're doing a lot less repeat surgeries on these women. As with anything, of course, the risks of extra procedures uh, versus the benefits must be weighed in your preoperative counseling. Um, Sometimes complications arise related to pop surgery, like a shortened vagina or restriction of the, the caliber of the vagina, and this can be managed with vaginal estrogen and dilators to, to gradually expand that potential space out. 
if mesh was placed, it can erode through the vaginal epithelium or cause dyspareunia. So um, all things that are covered in that committee opinion I mentioned before, 694, I believe is what the number was. And then of course, if you've had pop surgery and then you get a, a recurrence of your pop, then you can either repeat the pop surgery or you may even talk, start talking about an obliterative procedure or a pessary or doing nothing at all, just depending on how, um, uh, how bad the, uh, the symptoms are with this recurrence. So that does it, guys. Pelvic organ prolapse, we made it through a long one there. If you have any questions, reach out to me. I can be found at belovedholistics.com. If you're not yet a subscriber on Patreon, please do. Please do. You get access to all of these notes and more, including diagrams and images and graphics that are in my show notes, but that I can't um, produce for you with my words in this beautiful podcast version. In the meantime, do no harm, take no shit. We'll be talking about stress urinary incontinence and other types of incontinence in women in the next episode here on the OB-GYN-O-Wino podcast. Bye-bye.